everyone. Welcome to episode 115 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And buckle up your seatbelts, everybody. This is going to be a long episode. (laughs) We have a lot to say. We also have two interviews. And we're going to have our 2020 holiday gift ideas. And there's a reason we're kind of doing that early. And you have to listen to the whole episode and get there to find out why. (laughs) How's that for a teaser? (laughs) First, we wanted to thank our Patreon sponsors. We haven't done this for a while. This was inspired partly because we got a new patron, our buddy Karen. Thank you, Karen. And then it occurred to Chris and I that, you know, we've we've been a little lax in our thank yous. We have so. And we so we appreciate to... you all. It it really helps to cover the costs of the podcast. We really appreciate y'all's generosity. We do. We really do. So I'm going to call out your names quickly. Susan H., Gail, Sue J., Kathleen, Robin, Sue D. By the way, you, Suze, I think you should start a book club called like Sue Cubed or something. <laughs> Sharon, Emily S., Carol, Cheryl, Lisa, Karen, Leanne, and then these last have been patrons of ours since 2018. Helen, Colleen, Lou, Allison, and Deb. We really appreciate you. Yes, thank you all so much. Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading two books. I am still working on Celestial Bodies, which is our read-along upcoming I made the mistake of starting the audiobook, and I do not like the narrator of the audiobook at all. I feel like she makes them, the, the character sound like it's a really bitchy episode of Downton Abbey. <laughs> like, they just sound snooty and condescending. And so I, I listened to it when I was on a walk. I downloaded it from the library. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, (laughs) I got home and I thought, I just don't think I can listen to this anymore. And so then I've let it go for a couple days to kind of get it out of my head before I pick the book up again without that voice in my brain. The narrator is Lawrence Bovard. Is that the person who narrates the one you're listening to? I mean, is there only one audio version out there? I don't know. I'll have to look it up because I don't ha- I don't have my phone here and it's okay. on my phone. So I'll okay. look it up and get back to you on that when we we're going to be talking about Celestial Bodies on episode 116. Yeah, November, which will air November 10th. We're recording on the 6th. So if you're joining in on the conversation and have any questions or comments or if you love the narrator, I'm raising my hand <laughs> <laughs> or feel like okay. Chris does. Please pipe in. <laughs> so maybe it's not so much the narrator herself. She's a wonderful actor, voice person. It's just the 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 tones that she uses for the various characters. It's not how I'm reading the book. Like, I, I don't like any of the characters through her voicing of the characters. I'm not sure you're supposed to like them. I didn't well, think that. Okay, it's not necessarily like. Maybe I okay, <laughs> like, dislike that's not it. And I don't mean it that way. Like I'm not I don't mean like in terms of warm and fuzzy or likable character. Right. Yeah, it's not yeah. that kind of like. It's like all of the characters sound bitchy. They sound like bitchy wealthy English people. And there's one person who sounds a little bit Irish <laughs> with the accent. It, it just is not working for me. 
There's no mm-hmm. sense of the culture. I, I again, like I said, it could be an episode of Downton Abbey, practically. Wow, I can't wait till we talk about this in full. <laughs> <laughs> More to come. More to come. Apparently, <laughs> I was going to say the opposite. I finished reading. I started with the audiobook and then I jumped back and forth into the reading and I didn't like the reading experience at all because I found all I did was kept turning back to the family tree. Whereas when I listened to it, I just listened and it made sense and I didn't think about any of that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also not the theater buff that you are, Chris. <laughs> so perhaps I'm just not as discerning about the narration oh as you are. That wasn't condescending at all. <laughs> 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 so... The, <laughs> the other book moving on that I'm reading is called, it's a nonfiction, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And this is by Ejioma Aluo, who we will talk about in our recent Biblio adventures as well. She was one of the authors at the Hachette Book Club brunch. Ooh, that one sounds very compelling. Yes. I'm reading um, a nonfiction as well, and I'm mostly listening to it on audio read by the author himself. It's called Eat a Peach by David Chang, who is the chef and owner and founder of Momofuku Noodle Bar Mm. in New York City. I've never gotten to eat there. I remember like in a certain period of my life when I was raising my children and everything's a bit of a blur, I do remember that it was like the place to try to get into and it was impossible to get into and then as he kept opening restaurants same thing happened and he's won James Beard awards and all sorts of things and so I'm enjoying it there's parts of it where I feel like okay enough you know but then when he gets into the restaurants and running the restaurants and cleaning grease traps and all that that's totally my my jam so again it's called Eat a Peach by David Chang and I'm listening to it and reading it but mostly listening to it And then I started just last night a book called My Brilliant Life by Aaron Kim, translated by Chi Young Kim. And um, this I got from Tor Books. Thank you. It comes out in January of 2021, so not quite available yet. I love this blurb, though, by Jamie Ford, the author of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. He says, this is one of those novels where the characters seem to have immortal souls They're so real to me. I feel like adding them to my Christmas card list. When you read this book, give them my regards. Let them know I still think about them. (laughs) I love that. That's great. I thought that was cute. So, and it's about a young family, two teenagers who get pregnant at the age of 16. And then it's told from the point of view of their son, who is now 16. And I think I just started it. But from what I gather, he is aging at a faster clip than is typical. Hmm. So, more to come on that one. What have you just read? I read a memoir. I seem to be on a chef memoir kick. So, I finished a memoir called Everything is Under Control, a memoir with recipes by Phyllis Grant. And I feel kind of totally late to the party on Phyllis Grant. I will admit I've never heard of her She has a blog that's very popular called Dash and Bella. And those are the names of her children, I believe. And she's won all manner of rewards for her essays. This memoir, I read it in one sitting. It's very short. And it's written in a really odd but beautiful way. Almost, I want to say, like poetry. 
So here's an example of a sentence or a few sentences, I should say. When I cook, I am calm and confident. Baking works. You just follow the rules. There is comfort in the logic. Nice. I love that. So it's about being a mother and a daughter and a wife and a wannabe chef and learning to be a chef when you don't know how to, but have managed to get yourself into some really world-class kitchens. (laughs) And I really enjoyed it. It was different, like I said, than anything I've read before when it comes to a chef sort of memoir where she goes back and forth in time to current day to then weaving in her grandparents and her parents and how food was in her life as a kid and things like that. And then when you get to the end, she has 17 recipes, one of which is for creme fraiche, which she has a love affair with creme fraiche. I don't think I've ever seen a chef talk about that as much. I don't even know what it is. So I was going to say, for those of you who don't know what it is, it's it's basically like a, a liquidy sour cream, which does not sound very appealing, but it's delicious. And it has lots of different applications. And this is, she has a recipe for creme fraiche in, in, at the end of the book. And she's, this is what she says about it. I splash this over pasta, stews, avocado toasts, and tacos. I mix it into green goddess dressing and pesto. It's a wonderful replacement for sour cream. I put it in my cottage cheese pancakes. It's a lovely way to cut the sweet intensity of a cake or pie. Once you have it in your life, you will be tempted to use it every single day. Mm. I think she does. (laughs) Now, (laughs) restaurants sometimes can get in trouble. This is just insider kind of restaurant inside talk. But the classic way of making it is you just take cream, basically, and you let it kind of sour in a big jar. It's a little bit more complex than that. But that's the basic premise of it. And in the United States, people don't feel comfortable leaving dairy products out of the refrigerator. It's French. You know, you find it in French restaurants all the time. And and it is very classic instead of like whipped cream that they would put a little drizzle of creme fraiche over a piece of chocolate cake or something like that. So anyway, I really enjoyed it. I gobbled it right up in one sitting. Everything is under control. A memoir with recipes by Phyllis Grant. (laughs) That quote you shared, it made me think of the movie Julie and Julia. Mm-hmm. Where the Julia Childs character, they, I think they're talking, it's the scene where they're talking about their mayonnaise recipes. And mm-hmm. she says, scientific workability, <laughs> you know, about the recipe. And every time yeah. I'm cooking from a recipe, I, I hear that in my head. Scientific workability, like follow the follow recipe, the- it will work out. <laughs> yes. I mean, so baking is chemistry, you know, cooking is a little different than that. But absolutely. I, I love it. And mayonnaise is hard. So... <laughs> what are you reading you know what i just read a couple more short stories i read the secret lives of the nine negro teeth of george washington that was by p jelly clark who wrote the novel or novella some people are calling it ring shout that just came out which i really loved and george washington had false teeth as everyone knows i don't know if everyone knows though some of those false teeth were from his slaves i did not know that so this is a very imaginative story that is an award-winning story you can go to clark's website and he has links to it there which is how i read it really fascinating story i then also read desiccant 
which is a short story in a new collection that just came out called Slay, Stories of the Vampire Noir. And this is all by African or African-American writers, people in the African diaspora writing vampire stories, from what I understand. I have an e-copy, an e-review copy. So it's kind of sometimes, you know, it's not as simple as just flipping back and forth and looking at things. But that first story, it's the lead story in the collection. It was by Greg Lawrence Gidney. And it's very, it is noir in that it's in this dilapidated urban building where people who are past being down on their luck live. And this vampiric type creature that is in the sick building, and I use sick building in air quotes. Another story I'll mention is one that Shuli recommended. It's her favorite short story. And I thought that I had read this one before. It's by Edith Wharton. It's called Roman Fever. And I thought, yeah, I've read that one before, but I must have been mistaken it with a different story because I have not read the story. It completely captured me. And I could totally see why it's her favorite short story and one that really influenced her as a writer. And I believe she talked about that on a past episode. I'm sorry, I, I didn't look that up. Brilliant story. You know, I love Edith Wharton. And this story is about two middle-aged white women, wealthy white women from New York City who are vacationing in Rome, as they do, as they have been doing since they were children. So they're old friends. They have two daughters that are relatively the same age that are now friends. So you get the kind of the historical background of what their mothers were doing, what these middle-aged women's lives have been like, and then their daughters, you know. So you see the change through the generations. But wow, it is, I I don't want to say too much about it. It's a short, short story. I, I read it first thing in the morning the other day, and it's lingered on my mind ever since. And it's one of those, I'm just letting it kind of bake a little bit more in my brain before I reread it to see how she kind of built the suspense. Like read it more as a writer, you mean going back to it? Yeah. To understand. Yeah. yeah, How she did it. Yeah. Cause it's, it's just a fantastic story. So that was Roman fever by Edith Wharton. It was originally published, I believe in 1934 and then she revised it in 1936. And I believe I read the revised version. And I know when Shuli talked about it on a past episode, it is available to read online. So I'll dig that up. I put that in the show notes and I'll dig that up again and put it in the show notes. And I know not to do a spoiler, but I I believe it has a twist. You know what? Michael Kindness would be disappointed that we talk about twists. Okay, so maybe we should take that out. No, I don't know. We could leave it in. Can we leave it in? I don't know. But I just remember him talking about spoilers in one of the books on the Nightstand episodes and that he was saying that when people tell him there's a twist in a book that he hasn't read yet, that that's what he's reading for. Yeah, that's true. I do the same thing. Yeah, but then, you know, some, some writers are known for their twists, you know, like there are a couple Sarah Waters novels. I'm thinking of one in particular, I guess, where there's a twist so big that Laura, my wife actually threw the book across the room when she was reading it. (laughs) (laughs) And she is not a violent person. And so it kind of shocked me. And I was like, what? And she's like, Oh my God, I can't believe what just happened. I was like, was it that bad? She's like, no, it's brilliant. And then she got out of bed and picked up the book and kept reading. (laughs) 
Well, maybe it's not so bad to say there's a twist if it's a short story, because, you know, the suspense is only there for so long. But, (laughs) (laughs) well, I also read a book called The Boy in the Field by Margot Livesey. I think that's how you pronounce her name. I think she's pretty prolific. This is my first time reading one of her books. And this was just out this year. It's a new book. And it's told from the point of view of three siblings, Duncan, Zoe, and Matthew, who are waiting for their father to pick them up and give them a ride home from school. He doesn't show up. So they walk home. And on their walk home, they discover a young man in a field laying down. They think he's wearing red socks, which is what got their attention. But the socks are actually filled with blood. He has been harmed by somebody. Oh, that's not cupcakes. Yeah, no, it's not cupcakes. And as a matter, it's funny you should say that because I was reading it and I was like, no, I can't do this book. And I put it down on Jim's coffee table and it just stayed there for a week. And it kind of plagued me because I had gotten, I don't know, 50 pages in or something. And so finally I picked it back up and because I love her writing, she's beautiful writing, very spare. She's a, I think she teaches at the Iowa Writers Workshop or something. So she knows her craft. But then the story then is told from the point of view of these three siblings. Each chapter, you know, goes back to a different character. It's a bit of a whodunit, like what did happen to the boy in the field. But it's also kind of a coming of age story about these three different people. And there's a detective in the story. His name's Hugo. And he also interviews the kids. And it's so interesting to hear each of their perspective of, even the scene, right, of what they thought that the boy said to them, what he looked like, what was around, you know, it's like the whole thing of what people notice. And one of the characters, Duncan, who's also adopted, is an artist. And so he saw the scene and experienced it all from more of an artistic perspective, which was really fascinating as a reader as well. And so some of the themes are about adoption, because Duncan is adopted, infidelity, teenage love, and family. And then it's all wrapped up in this mystery. So, you know, but then it's also one of those where like, is solving the mystery really important? It's really more about the effect that coming across this young man had on these other children and how it affects them as they grow up. And also, I think one of the themes was there are always going to be mysteries in life. You know, many crimes go unsolved. They just don't find out. Just like how our life, people come in and out of our lives, and some of it's mysterious. So I think that's kind of what she was was getting at here. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad I picked it back up. It was kind of reminded me of that Luann Rice book where I just, I had to get past some of the you know, unpleasantries, but then the book was worth it for sure. (laughs) And again, it was called The Boy in the Field by Margot Livesey. Nice. Did you read more? The only other book I read was Celestial Bodies, which we will again be talking about um, on episode 116 in more depth. It's our read along book. Just a reminder to people, we also have a Goodreads discussion thread. uh, Hop on. This is one that I think people are going to have a lot to say about. Yes. (laughs) all right so on to biblio adventures i got to see alice hoffman in conversation with ann leary via powell's books i stayed up late past my bedtime (laughs) 
I did watch it in my jammies. I was thinking that's the one real benefit to these virtual events. You can get all, you know, I got showered and put my jammies on, brushed my teeth. So I was ready for bed when it was over. And I really enjoyed it. She did uh, make a mention just to remind people she has a new book out called Magic Lessons. It's the prequel to Practical Magic and Rules of Magic. One bit of exciting news, actually two bits of exciting news for Alice Hoffman fans. There's going to be a fourth book. Wow. So she is not done with the Owens women yet. And it has been picked up. It's going to be serialized as a television show. Very cool. All four books. Cool. I believe so. So where is this fourth one landing in their story? I believe it's after Magic Lessons. So maybe more like in the... 18th century I'm not really sure I kind of couldn't follow that so much I did ask the question that I told listeners I would pose to her which was now that she's written these three I didn't realize there was going to be a fourth when I asked this question does she recommend that people start now with the prequel and she said you know it really just depends on your preference because it's either do you prefer to read them like I wrote them going back in time, or are you someone who wants to read going forward in time? Which I thought was a really interesting answer. Yeah. So she doesn't feel strongly about it. I think many people have said now that they've read the prequel, they want to read the other ones again. So maybe if you haven't read any of them, I would recommend the prequel first, but it's hard for me to say because I've read them. Yeah. The way she wrote them, you know, mm-hmm. so interesting yeah Yeah, that's a quandary for people who i kind of am a stickler for reading things in chronological order by publication date Mm -hmm. yeah now this is a quandary because it is kind of like well story-wise you know do you go with the earlier story with these people or or what i have to decide you know, if I didn't work for a living and I could just spend a couple of weeks, I would maybe read them both ways. Can you believe oh, that? That's how much I love her writing. Yeah. Like, but I might wait till the fourth comes out. But then, of course, someone said, do you think you'll be done after the fourth? And she was like, I don't know. <laughs> so, so who knows? But, but it was really lovely. I really enjoyed hearing her. Um, I could talk so much about it, but I know we have a lot on our plates with this episode. The one thing I will say is that someone, you know, in her book, she has a lot of herbalism and magic and things like that. And someone did ask her, you know, is it all made up or is is it, you know, any of it true? And she said she has a couple really great reference books mm. for both herbs and magic. And so a lot of it is, you know, really based on true readings that she's done. But she says with a caveat, I don't recommend, that, you know, that you go out and try to use these to help people or to harm them. So I thought that was really, really sweet. Yeah. But, um, you know, yeah. she's on tour now. So if you're a fan of hers, I would definitely go to her website and there are more events coming up. Very cool. I'm definitely going to jump into that series or at least try one of the books because, you know, it's my cougar's favorite writer. I have to read one of them at least. Um, (laughs) Yes. The only uh, Biblio adventure I was on was with my fellow cougar, Emily, and a bunch of other honorary cougars. A lot of our um, listeners and Booktopia friends were also at that event, as well as Aunt Ellen. And that was the Hatchet Book Club brunch. This 
event has been going on for several years now. What they do is they have a fiction panel, a nonfiction panel, and then they have a discussion of a book, hence the book club brunch, that participants, when they register early enough, get this book sent to them. It's an advanced reader copy of a forthcoming book that the publisher is really excited about. The fiction panel was moderated by Bill Goldstein, who I think is like my favorite moderator. If I had to pick a favorite moderator, I really enjoy the questions that he asks. Um, So he was in a panel with Emma Donahue, whose new book is The Pull of the Stars, Attica Locke, whose new book is Heaven, My Home, and then Natasha Lester, whose new book is The Paris Secret. And this is such a fun, engaging panel. I really would love to read all of those books that were under discussion. How do you feel about that, Emily? I felt the same way. It was funny because The Pool of the Stars, I also have that from the library and on audio. And I started it and it's about the 1918 flu epidemic. And I was like, oh, I can't do this. But in the chat the day of the event, a lot of people said, and I think it came up in conversation also, how it actually, for them reading the book, was really lovely because it made them realize like people have been through bad times before Mm -hmm. and got through to the other side. And then just listening to her speak, which I know you saw her in person back in the day, it really made me want to pick the book up. Yeah. And obviously, she started writing this book way before our current COVID-19 pandemic hit. So it was just one of those coincidental things. But um, yeah, I had met her when Room was just coming out in the United States. She was at uh, the bookstore where I worked. It was just long listed for an award. And I thought, well, this is kind of cool. I should, you know, check her out. And then I ended up buying Room that night and I read it straight through. I just read from the moment I got home until like two or three in the morning. I'm not sure how long it took. And that's not a book that I normally would have picked up because it's about a child. And I tend not to read a lot of books about kids and animals. But the way she talked about it and her motivation for writing it was so, it just captured my imagination that I couldn't not read it. And I kind of feel that way about The Pull of the Stars. She tends to write about intense issues Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's yeah. very smart. And then Attica Locke, you know, I read the first book that she wrote with that character and and listening to her speak, I really want to read this one. And it kind of has fallen off my radar. So I was glad to see her and hear her speak. And then the other author, I hadn't heard of her book, had you? I had not. So that was Natasha Lester. She's from Australia. Attica Locke is from Texas. She lives in LA now. And then Emma Donahue is originally from Ireland and lives in Canada. So they had all these different um, time zones they were in. You know, for Attica Locke, it was early in the morning. And for Natasha Lester, it was late at night. So that was kind of fun to imagine them being in different parts of the world. Yeah, it was really, really good. And as you said, Bill Goldstein is a master moderator. He asks good questions. And then he also does a great job of flowing, you know, Mm -hmm. when the conversation goes in a certain direction, he keeps people on tasks, but also is willing to change directions if the conversation goes that way. I really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Now, the um, nonfiction panel, 
That was moderated by Roxanne Cody, who we've mentioned before on this podcast. She's the owner of R.J. Julia Booksellers in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> Can you tell I'm from Illinois? Um, Madison, Connecticut, just uh, one town over from where, where we are here. And the authors on that panel, it was Ijeoma Aluo, who wrote Mediocre, which is the book I'm reading right now. And it is an advanced reader copy that I'm reading. I'm not sure when that book comes out. It must be out though now, right? If they were I think selling. so. And okay. I know she has other books that she's written as well. Yes, she wrote So You Want to Talk About Race, mm-hmm. which was a very yeah. big bestseller. The other two writers, it was Jennifer Palmieri, who wrote She Proclaims, Our Declaration of Independence from a Man's World. And then Leslie Gray Streeter, her, it's a memoir called Black Widow. She's someone who lost her husband at a very young age. And this memoir is about her grief, but it's also very humorous as well. Because as they talked about on this panel, like humor is what gets us through the hardest of times. Right. This was another compelling panel. I was so jazzed up by the end of this one. (laughs) Just three, well, four, Roxanne, I would include her in this, powerful women, really um, well-spoken and inspired me to want to read all of their books and just, you know, get out of bed. Yes, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So these two, both of these panels were so amazing, just really high energy. And then we had the event ended with a conversation between Michael Ferris Smith, whose new book is called Nick. This is a prequel to The Great Gatsby. Um, He was in conversation with editor Josh Kendall. And I have to say, it felt like I attended two different events after the high energy of the first two panels. Their conversation really kind of lost me. Mm -hmm. I agree. It was, you know, not to be mean, (laughs) but it was very male to start. And I... You know, there were some people who said they were a little disappointed that there weren't some male authors on the other two panels, which I I agree that last year they had male authors on both of those panels, I believe. But then this one, the book itself, I DNF'd, I found it completely unreadable for me. And the conversation was not interesting, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, I I agree totally. I also tried to read the book and DNF'd it. The thing that I have to say just disappointed me is I felt like all the other two panels were so rich. The books were interesting. They were things I wanted to read. And I felt like in the place we are today in our country, that it would have been really wonderful if they chose a book that was more thought provoking, I think. Yeah. And maybe opened us up to a different culture or something like that. So that's where I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that might not be Hachette's groove. I don't know. I haven't looked at their whole catalog, you know. Well, the thing about this book is uh, the author, Michael Ferris Smith, wrote it like five years ago. He spent a lot of time in Europe and Paris as a young writer and You know, so writers like Fitzgerald and Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, he mentioned, were swirling in his brain. And so he wanted to write this prequel. And he didn't realize that there was a copyright issue. 
So, you know, when he presented to his editor, it's like, well, this is great, but we can't do anything until it's out of copyright, which is 2021, which is when the book is coming out in January 2021. So I'll be interested to see how the book does. I know most of the people that we're connected with who attended the event and got that advanced reader copy didn't particularly enjoy the book if they did indeed finish it. Yeah. That seemed to be a theme. I did see a couple people in the chat who said they really liked it. So yeah, yeah, and, and we should both say we didn't finish it. So yeah. you know, give it a chance right. if it's Bailiwig. Yeah. yeah. Well, we should also say that we did another joint jaunt, but this time we were um, behind the mics, and we were guests on the Reading Envy podcast with our buddy Jenny Colvin. Yeah. And that podcast has already aired, and it's episode 202 of the Reading Envy podcast, and we'll put a link in the show notes. It was really fun. So much fun. It's always a great time to talk with Jenny. Yeah, we enjoyed it. So any upcoming jaunts, Chris? You know what? Yes. Um, There is a surprise event that just kind of came into being our buddy john valeri is the one who pointed this out uh listeners who've been around for a while may remember that i've talked about the one day mystery event called crime con that happens here in connecticut that is a joint venture between uh the ferguson library and mystery writers of america the new york and connecticut chapter So instead of having a one-day event this year in a conference room in a library, they're spreading it out over five Thursdays. They had the first event last night already, October 22nd. The second event is October 29th, and then it'll be November 5th, 12th, and the 19th. And this is 7 p.m. Eastern time via Zoom, and we'll put a link in the show notes. I've attended this event two or three times in the past, and I've always really enjoyed it. So check it out. The final night is Tom Straw in conversation with Walter Mosley, who is a legendary mystery writer. That's CrimeCon, and what are they calling it? They're calling it CrimeCon Express this year, since it's all <laughs> online. That's great. I love it. Well, I've signed up for one event, and after I signed up, I was like, I'm not sure if this is more for me or for the gentleman caller. But it's to get us through, I think, kind of calm the nerves awaiting um, the upcoming election. want to ri- remind everybody to please vote. The event is through Politics and Prose, which is um, high on my want to visit list down in D.C. And they do a lot of political events because of their location. And this is uh, called What Unites Us. And it's with Dan Rather, who has a new book out. And I know he's being very vocal about what's happening with politics today. So I'm really excited to get a chance to hear him speak about his book. And this is on October 30th, a Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's free, but you do need to register. And Politics and Prose does great events. I do think they usually record them, but I don't want to make that promise. So I will you know, when I report back on doing the event, I will let you know if it's been recorded. Great. So what about upcoming reads? I have one upcoming read. It's called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. And I'm going to be listening to this via Libro.fm on audio. Nice. 
I have a book. I have a stack of books that I checked out of the library. And one that I, I look forward to getting to next is called Cardiff by the Sea. And that's a new collection of four novellas by Joyce Carol Oates. I really have enjoyed everything I've read by her for the most part. She's so prolific. And I've read like, you know, 0. 0.001 <laughs> of, her, yeah. of her work. So I thought that might be a good way to read some more from her, especially since I'm on this short story slash novella kick. Yeah, I love that idea. That's That might be a good place for me to start with her because I've never read any of her books. And when I saw her at the Charleston to Charleston Festival last year, I swore, you know, like, okay. And I should have just bought one of the books and then I would have done it. But yeah. um, she's yeah. everywhere. I was when yeah. I was at the library browsing the other day, I did browse through the three most recent editions of Poetry Magazine. And there were two poems by Joyce Carol Oates in there. I was like, damn, she's everywhere. <laughs> and she teaches. Yeah. She's no slacker. Wow. Not at all. Well, should we talk about our gift ideas? Yeah, let's jump into that. Um, so I think we're doing this a little bit earlier than we normally do in the year. But since we've started this podcast, we always do a holiday gift idea segment. And this year we're starting it a little bit earlier because one of the things that's that's going on in the publishing world is there's a shortage of printing capacity in the United States right now. And this has a lot to do with uh, the two primary printers in America having financial difficulties. One of them declared bankruptcy in the spring. They're both up for sale. It's Quad and then LSC Communications are the, the two biggest uh, printers so they were already having financial strain and then the pandemic hit. So they at first had a real tanking of educational textbooks happening. The retail slowdown also affected them. But then there was this issue of publishers delaying books being released from the spring to the summer and then the fall. Well, as most you know, heavy readers know fall is a big release time for the really big books that publishers are planning to sell. One of the biggest anticipated books this fall is President Obama's presidential memoir called A Promised Land that's coming out November 17th. They're going to put out an initial printing of 3 million copies of this book, which wow. is unprecedented. <laughs> Past presidential memoirs like Clinton's and George Bush's, I think they did an initial printing of 1.5 million, if I'm not mistaken. So 3 million is a lot of books. At a time when printers are already like if a publisher wants to do a reprint of a book, traditionally, it would take about two weeks to get those printed. Now it's more than four weeks delay time, which the desire for a book could fade in that amount of time. So it's really a challenging time, not only for publishers, but for the printers. So one of the solutions that the publisher did is they're having a, at least a million copies of Obama's book printed in Germany. And then they're going to be shipped back to the United States in something like 112 shipping containers. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that's a, that is a big production that somebody out there is having the pleasure of uh, managing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, all of this just made us kind of think about our own gift giving earlier. 
And I think that's a good idea. And there's also one of the ideas I have take some prep time. So we each came to the table with five different suggestions. We don't know what they are. Right. We do have one joint suggestion. Right. And let's start off with that one. And that's Libro.fm, which some of you have heard us speak about in the past. We are an affiliate of Libro.fm. They're having a special kind of holiday gift giving where you can give a gift of a membership for either three months, six months, or 12 months. And to remind people, Libro.fm, when you sign up, you can either choose an independent bookstore that a portion of your sales dollars goes to, or you can just choose not to affiliate yourself with a particular independent bookstore, and they will just kind of share the wealth across all of the independents that are in their group. But one of the things they're doing with this gift membership is you pay for either all three months or six months or 12 months at one time, and they are going to immediately pay the independent bookstore half of that membership. And that's just to literally put money in the coffers of these independent bookstores. They are struggling. So Libro.fm really is helping. I mean, they're a business too, and obviously they're going to make their money, but it's a wonderful way to share the wealth with independent bookstores when you're an audiobook listener. You can buy a gift membership for yourself. You can buy it for your friends and family. I will put a link in the show notes that if you use the Book Cougars promo code, that helps the Book Cougars a little bit as well. You also can sign up for the regular just membership. You don't have to do a gift membership where you pay one month at a time. And for that, you just use the Book Cougars promo. I think you just use the Book Cougars. I should say you just type in Book Cougars as the promo, all one word. But I will put these links in the show notes to be sure that, you know, it's easier for you to access. And I think the thing is with audiobooks, you know, some people have been hearing about them, but they haven't listened yet. I think there's still some hesitation on some people's part that it's not really reading when you listen to an audiobook. And I, you know, I think that it that's really not true. You are experiencing the book in a different way. And it might even be fun to listen to a book with a loved one that you're distanced from at the same time. So that could be a fun thing to do, too, is to kind of have a group audio listen. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's entertaining. It's entertaining in a different way. So I've become a huge fan of audiobooks. And the other cool thing about Libro.fm that's different than some of the other audio platforms out there is that because of their relationship with independent bookstores on their website, they also have kind of that idea of the shelf talkers or staff picks that you would get if you walk into a bookstore. And I really appreciate that. Or in they have, you know, different people who give you lists with a certain subject area focus or something like that. So if you really just want to quote, browse a bookstore, Libro.fm does offer a little bit of that feel, I think. Yeah, that's really great. And it, like Emily said, it's so important to keep supporting independent bookstores because they are struggling. And, you know, with books like the Obama's forthcoming memoir that we mentioned, they need to know, you know, your pre-order now, you know, so other books that are coming out, make sure you pre-order as well so they can get that to you because there's not only the production weight, there is also the shipping, which has been already slowed down by COVID, which is probably only going to get a little bit dicier as holiday orders increase. Exactly. And that's just a follow on to what Chris was saying about, 
you know, just um, what's going on in the industry for printing, but for bookstores as well, um, just getting these holiday orders in sooner really helps them to pay their employees, know how to staff, you know, their, their buildings and all of that. So anything we can do to help these small businesses, I think, you know, the sooner, the better. Absolutely. So what's up for you? What Give us one of your gift ideas. So this is a gift idea that I know that you can go online and buy book covers of books, famous books to hang on your wall. I was thinking it could be really fun to do your own version of this. So frame a book cover for, you know, if you know somebody's favorite book is X, get a copy and frame it. Mm, you know or if you know somebody who has a favorite writer you know Jane Austen or Melville or somebody you know you can kind of do a collage as well of different covers and if you're worried about mutilating the book you could also have a nice color copy of the cover made you know like go to your local staples or local office supply store printer and they can make a really nice color copy for you in whatever size you want it and then you can frame it I know Michael's right now you know they always have a frame sale going on it seems so that can be a fun idea yeah that's a great idea I love that my first idea is something that we're trying to push as cougars also which is masks book themed masks there are a lot of them out there out of Print is one of the companies that has some really cool ones. McLean and Eakin Booksellers, one of my favorite independent bookstores up in Petoskey, Michigan, has a great one that has, you know, the state of Michigan and it says something about like stay safe, stay home. You know, it says something really fun. I can't remember. So and there are some with just like one of them, I think on out of print is book nerd, which I'm thinking about getting I love that one. But then there are some that have different literary characters and things like that. So I'll put a link in the show notes to several different outlets for book themed masks. That's great. I'm thinking we need to start think of masks more as an accessory like earrings, you know, like Mm -hmm. have a handful of masks that you can accessorize with as you walk out the door. Absolutely. You know, different colors, different themes, and then have your classic black mask for those, you know, elegant evenings. Right. At home. At home. (laughs) Yes. I love that. My second idea, this one's a little bit more time consuming. And to give you the backstory on this, when our friend Cindy had her bricks and mortar bookstore, she for a while had some bricks, you know, some house bricks that somebody had painted with different book titles on it. And at one point, I wanted to get one for Laura. And then the next time I went to the bookstore, Cindy had told me this woman did, you know, requests. Uh, But then by the time I asked Cindy about it, she was no longer doing it. And I thought, well, I could do one myself because I wanted to get Laura a housewarming gift for our new house based on a book that was one of her childhood favorites. So I looked at the book. I kind of got the color scheme and the vibe. There's like a a sailboat on the cover. We're not affiliated with Michaels and I'm mentioning them now twice, but you know, I went to Michaels and to Target actually and got some paints, some paint colors that matched and also a couple templates. So I actually found a sailboat template and then um, some letter templates. The letter templates turned out to be a mess. So I ended up 
working on freehand and practicing a little bit. So this is what I recommend you do if this appeals to you is to have two bricks and have one brick that's going to be your practice brick where you practice handwriting if you're going to freehand it, practice using the stencils because they can be kind of challenging when you're using paint. What I did was I took the brick and I painted it all white, let it dry overnight, and then the next day I started with the templates put those on with this uh, I had a the sailboat and then I actually got a little felt seagull that was also at one of the stores and then let that dry and then the next day I did the freehand with the lettering obviously if you're living in a small apartment and you don't have a lot of privacy this could be a hard gift to make for somebody you live with and it also is a challenging gift mail because it's a brick so right. <laughs> <laughs> that could cost a bit, but it's really fun because you then that your person could use it as, you know, a bookend or a doorstop. I made one for myself that's just black with a white whale on it. Oh, I love <laughs> so, it. That's you awesome. know, you could do it for yourself as well, obviously. And actually, you know, the, the U.S. Post Office anyway now has those flat rate boxes that, you know, it's like $15 if up to 70 pounds. I don't think your brick would be more than 70 pounds. Oh, that's pounds, good. So. Right. Good yeah. suggestion. So I think yeah. you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. And, you know, I don't know if you live in a small apartment, just tell your person that you're having some issues. You need to spend a little <laughs> extra time in the bathroom. Good. Good one. <laughs> Turn that yes. fan on so the paint smells go away. Yeah. That's a great idea. I love that yeah, idea. Yeah. I've been thinking about handmade gifts you know because I think a lot of people are you know they're burnt out from a lot of things right now and mm -hmm. maybe online buying is one of the things they're a bit burnt out on so yeah. handmade gift could be kind of fun absolutely I love that idea my next idea is one of ours that was brought to me by our buddy Shuli and it's really for Shuli but um, there's a reason that I think it's good to mention this she has been on our podcast three times now for three different books, most recently for her story collection, A Small Thing to Want. And she is in a position that a lot of authors are in that had books released this year, which is that when you're working with a small press, oftentimes you buy your own books to take to your book events. And this year for a lot of authors, their book events were then canceled. A lot of them are using their books as decorations all over their house, but what they'd really like to do is sell them. <laughs> so Shuli started a shop on her site, um, shulikaywood.com, and she's offering a special right now where if you um, buy two of the collection, you get 10% off. If you buy three, you get 15% off. Shuli's also been doing a lot of doodling. She does amazing doodles and she's created some postcards with them. So if you buy directly from Shuli, you also get a surprise doodle postcard. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. I want you all to go out and buy Shuli's books. But I also think, you know, think about um, we've talked about how important pre-ordering is um, for authors and for bookstores. And now we understand for printers so they know how much to print and have the lead time to do so. But I also think, you know, go out and look at some of these small presses and find authors and offer, look at their websites. And a lot of them are selling their books and, you know, buy books through them. And also a lot of them will ship and it's a little bit more personalized. They're willing to sign them and things like that. So. Yeah, that is so important, Emily, because, you know, writers like Obama and Stephen King and Joyce Carol Oates, like they're always going to be selling books, um, but smaller, newer writers writers with their first book they just got lost in all of this because their books 
they might be in a bookstore, but the bookstores aren't open for browsing. So right. you don't find those new to you authors right as you know you would and then you know spread them by word of mouth right and i also think when you go to virtual events you know sometimes you take the next step and order the book and sometimes you don't Mm -hmm. whereas if you're in the store the pile of books is there the author has charmed you all evening you know you're a little bit more inclined to buy one of their books and maybe one of their backlist books as well so right yeah yeah totally so my next thing is really quick, and I may have recommended this in the past, but it's a leather book weight. Mm. Did I recommend that in the past? I'm showing Emily mine. I think you did, but what? it's such a great thing. These yeah. things, so it's just a leather, a long leather flap with two weights at either end. I got mine from Levenger. You can get them in different colors. Mine is red. I use this thing as much as I use pencils and pens probably because when you're taking notes or you want to leave your book open it's just so handy and it's such a I don't know it's just such a handy thing what more can I say super handy for cookbooks too cookbooks are the worst because they always flop closed right when you're trying to read some key move you know and then your cookbook you know I always end up with dirty messy hands like opening it back up and then my cookbook never opens on that page again because yes. I glued it closed <laughs> so really a lovely thing totally yeah. handy and you know I've used my phone and I've used another book to keep another book open and it just everything falls all over the place. So it's just nice to have a clean, simple option. Yep, definitely. Well, my next, I feel like isn't the most creative thing, but it's close to my heart, which is donations. Want to remind people that sometimes you have that person, you cannot think of what to buy for them. You can donate in someone else's name. It really is a feel good. We had a listener, our buddy Julia donated in our names to the Emily Dickinson, is it museum? Is that the house and museum? House and museum. Yeah. It was such a warm fuzzy. It was really lovely. And I highly recommend and remind people to donate to Bank, which, um, you know, we interviewed Annie Felbrook from Bank Square Books and Savoy Bookstore and Cafe, um, who sits on the board of Bank. And to remind people, Bank is really helpful in helping with both bookstores and employees of bookstores when they go through difficult patches. Yes. You can apply for grant from them. Very easy process. And they've been really stepping up their game during the pandemic. And in the same vein, a lot of bookstores are starting GoFundMe campaigns to keep their doors open. It's another form of donation. Lots out there. If you do some searching in your neighborhood or a neighborhood you used to live in, check in on your old haunts and help them out. Awesome. All right. So my next idea is to get a photo mug where you can put your own photos in it. Travel mug. I have a purchase several of these where you unscrew it. There's usually a paper template in there. So you could actually draw on it if you want to or cut and paste various things. I had made one for Connecticut when we were in the process of working. Laura and I were both working three jobs a piece to save money to be able to move to Connecticut. So I made like a motivational mug for both of us, you know, with Connecticut as the goal and everything. So I was thinking you could totally make one. Again, 
kind of similar to the picture frame idea is to make it with somebody's favorite book or somebody's favorite authors or their genre or just something book related that can be kind of fun. And that's something you could do for like a whole, you know, a family or a couple that you might know, you know, want to do one for kids, for adults. I think it's very flexible. And if you just Google photo travel mug, you'll see different options out there. And, you know, some companies where you submit your artwork and then they print it directly onto it, that's an option as well. But I really like the ones that you can do yourself because you can unscrew it and then change out the artwork periodically. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, I've got a similar, my next one is similar. Um, I'm in a book club called the Bicoastal Bibliophiles, and we've been meeting for years. And one of our members is very, he's just really good with photos and with doing artsy things. And he created a book for us, which I have now I have an office. So I feel very discombobulated. <laughs> it's at my office. Um, so I don't, I can't do a show and tell with Chris. I may have shown it to you before, but he took the covers of each of the books we've read over the years and made this beautiful book for us. And on the cover of it, it says, you know, by coastal bibliophiles, and it has the stack of the books on the cover. And then inside each book is a page. And then what people who I haven't done this, and I have regret I should have, but some of the people are then for each book we've read since he produced the book as a gift for us one year, just have been writing, you know, each we meet quarterly each quarter what the book was and all of that. And we've been kind of poking him to a little bit like time for volume two. <laughs> no pressure. That's great. But if you're in a book club, you know, or you, the kind of the same idea you have of if you're in a family or have friends and you know some of their favorite books, it's really a lovely thing that I have. And I, I keep it front and center on my bookshelf and it makes me smile. That's nice. The last gift idea I have is totally nothing that you make yourself. It's totally a purchase. And it's a little bit on the pricier side. Apple AirPods mm, or any yeah. kind of like, you know, wireless earbuds. Um, I like the Apple AirPods because I have Apple phone and laptop. I resisted getting these for myself for a long time because I thought it was kind of frivolous. I have my earbuds that I use like for years. Why do something different? Well, I splurged early on during the pandemic and bought myself a pair and I love them. So that would be my last gift recommendation is if you know somebody who listens to audio a lot, whether they're podcasts or audiobooks, and it could be a little nice little package if you get somebody the Libro.fm gift package, you can kind of have those earbuds in there for, you know, something to open. Look at you. Imagine bundling. A a, <laughs> you're bundling. That's a great idea. You know, I actually, that was my big gift because they, they aren't cheap. That was my big gift to my son when he just graduated in the spring. And um, he was telling me the other day, he's now moved from Philadelphia, a city to Boulder, a different city. And he said, it's funny, mom, in Boulder, if you wear your ear AirPods, people just ignore that you're, you know, talking on the phone or something, and they'll just start talking to you. <laughs> Whereas in Philadelphia, he was like, no one would talk to you if you were walking down the street with those. in." you know, yeah. I thought that was funny how different <laughs> cities have different feels, you know, mm -hmm. but that's a great suggestion. 
Well, my last is a segue into our interview with Karen Gardner of Bookplate Inc. She's going to tell you all about what a bookplate is. Um, they're little sticky-backed pieces of paper with designs on them that you can use to put into a book to identify its owner. Yeah, they're self-adhesive now. You don't have to get out your cement glue and make a mess right. to adhere it to your book. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They've stepped up to new technology. <laughs> Just peel and stick. A lot of authors, as she mentions when we talk to her, are using them now as a way to, quote, sign books for people since we can't be in person together. So more people may know about book plates than they than used to. But I think they'd make a great gift for yourself and for someone you love and the perfect stocking stuffer if you do that sort of thing. Yeah, there was one of the stories on Karen's website. Um, it was a grandmother whose grandkid lived out of the country and she would send him books. And so she had the book plate designed for each book she sent him, which I thought was a beautiful story. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, Karen's website, um, it's bookplate ink.com and that's ink with a k not a c and i will put that in the show notes and let me tell you you will be lost for hours when you go to that website there's a lot to look at it's really fun yeah. and we encourage you and she does as well to place your orders early if you want them to arrive in time for the holidays yeah so enjoy our interview with karen hi everyone we're so excited to have with us today karen gardner who is the owner of Bookplate Inc. When Chris and I started to think about putting together our holiday gift ideas this year, I thought of Karen immediately and looked online to make sure she was still producing bookplates. And sure enough, she is. And she's kind enough to join us today. Let's start with what is a bookplate? That's a good question. A book plate is a decorative label that goes on the inside cover of a book or sometimes the first page of a book to indicate the ownership. That's the traditional use of the book plate, and it's usually decorative so that it represents the owner's personality or artistic desires um, or even hobbies of theirs, professions, etc. Book plates are also called ex libris sometimes because often they have the phrase ex libris on them, which is Latin for from the library of or from the books of. You know, every now and then I'll come across a beautiful old book plate. I frequent use bookstores and some of them are so detailed, you know, with dragons and fight scenes mm -hmm. or very elegant with fountain pens and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you create your designs or how people can work with you to create designs? Sure. Most of the designs that we have for Book Plate Inc. are actually designs that were created or commissioned by the Antioch Book Plate Company, which used to be owned here in Yellow Springs, Ohio, which is where I am now, or have been for a long time. They um, actually used a variety of both well-known artists at the time, or illustrators, and in-house artists that that worked for Antioch, the Antioch Company, and they created a lot of designs for a whole variety of people. And one thing I want to say is that book plates started off in the 1500s, basically 14, 1500s, mostly to be used for 
noble people, barons, whatever, wealthy people to identify their books. And I think it it kept that way for a while. But Antioch, when the original vision was to make book plates accessible for all sorts of people. So they created a, a variety of designs. And whereas people used to have to commission an artist to do a design for them, this way they could pick a design out of the variety that Antioch had, something that would be suitable for them. And then Antioch would personalize it with their name on it. So most of the book plates that Bookplate Inc. now has our designs that we acquired from the Antioch company, which is no longer in business. And then I've also commissioned some designs from artists of today um, to have more of a variety. So that's how most people buy their book plates. Um, we have a variety that are some of the more popular designs we sell without any personalization so you can just buy the book plates fairly inexpensively and then write your own name in them people also usually pick a design of ours and then um, request a certain text on them aside from that we also take artwork that people give to us and I'll create a design with that. Usually something very simple. If it's something really elaborate, I have a designer that I work with that'll do some of that work. And a lot of times people have their own illustrator who will create a design for them and then send us uh, camera-ready artwork. Right. There's all sorts of ways you can personalize them. It's funny right. because I remember, full disclosure, I was born and raised in Yellow Springs, and as we say on the Cougars, we're proud middle-agers. So I was born in 69. Antioch Company was going strong when I was a kid growing up. And I have vivid memories of getting a box of book plates. And, you know, with my chicken scratch, I don't know if I was eight years old or something, writing my name. And I always felt like the purpose of it for me was when I lend, would lend my books to someone, it was my way of saying, you know, this is lending. You know, when I put a book plate in, you know whose book this is. Because I now suffer from, you know, I have stacks of books everywhere. And sometimes I don't remember who lent me a book or who gave it to me. So do people use it to just identify their own? Do they use it as gifts to give to people? What do you see mostly that people use them for? It's such a wide variety. It's kind of fascinating. People use them to identify their own books, um, partly just as you're saying. So if they lend them out, people will remember who gave it to them. But also just as a matter of pride, you know, a lot of people have large libraries and they want all the books identified. But people also buy book plates if they're donating their books to a library or to an institution. They'll put book plates in them so that, you know, it's just marked who gave that to them. Um, we also have a lot of libraries and churches, universities that will buy book plates when they're getting a donation, you know, and so it'll be from the collection of, or et cetera. A lot of school libraries buy book plates. And one of the interesting things that schools will do is have a birthday club where they'll give a book to a, um, a student on their birthday and they'll buy book plates for that. And then a really interesting use that's only come up as far as I know in the last several years is that a lot of authors are buying book plates 
and often with the with artwork from the their book and then the authors will sign the book plates and send them to their readers sometimes through their publishers sometimes through their website and that's gotten really big this year with the pandemic um, because authors aren't going out on book tours so there's been a lot of business from that recently that's great um, and, yeah and even with those um, you know it's everything from a simple you know sort of border design that we have with nothing in the middle um, they'll they'll sign that to having their name and book maybe their website on a design that we currently have and then very elaborate ones with with artwork they provide that's cool so karen if somebody wants to put in a special order with you how soon should they get that to you because this is our holiday gift episode and it's today it's what is it october 23rd i think we're recording this yes um, as soon as possible, because <laughs> um, <laughs> we're slow, um, uh, small. I mean, it, um, we have a two to three week turnaround time for the personalized orders. So it takes a while. In the last couple of weeks before Christmas, we'll try to get things out within a week. And any of the non-personalized designs that we have that come anywhere from a packet of 20 that to give to you know, as a stocking stuffer or, or boxes of more, um, the non-personalized designs we get out within a week. And there are plenty of those, we should say. So, you know, in the show notes, we'll put a link to the website and folks can browse. I spent hours the other day browsing all of the different (laughs) ones. That's one of the things that's worried me. And I actually put out a survey at one point to customers because there are over 170 designs on the website. And um, sometimes I worry that it's just too overwhelming for people. But there'll be a book plate that nobody's ordered for a year. And then it's just perfect for somebody. So I've left everything up there. And actually, there are archives of Antioch book plates. So there's even more than what's on the website. And sometimes people will write sort of like you were saying, Emily, and say, I had this book plate when I was a little girl and, you know, and I just realized you were still there. Could I have this same book plate? Somebody last week ordered a book plate that hasn't been printed in years, but his father found them on his grandfather's book and wrote to me and asked if he could have that reproduced as a gift to his father. And I looked back in the archives and and we had that book plate still. So we get that sort of thing quite often too. Um, Anyway, and I am a little worried this year about shipping because of the pandemic. So that's why I say, especially to get, try to get orders in early this year. Yeah, so, so that, I think that's the the main moral of the story is just order them. Go listen to this episode, <laughs> get on the website, make a list yeah. of all of your friends and order book plates. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. <laughs> Thank <Okay>. you. <laughs> well, Karen, we know that, that you have to, to take off here soon, but can we ask one more question? Sure, sure, anything. How did you get into this business? It's always interesting to, to find out how that happens. That's an interesting story. And if you don't mind a little more time, I'll go into a little more history of the Antioch Book Plate Company. Please. Ernest Morgan and a man named Walter Cahoe, which Emily, Emily's probably heard of him. They were Antioch College students back in the 1930s. 
and they were working for the Antioch Press and were discouraged by how many scraps of paper were just being thrown away. And so they started using some ornamental type and things to make book plates to sell the people. And they, they got the permission of Antioch College to call it the Antioch Book Plate Company. And Walter ended up selling his part to Ernest, but Ernest Morgan just went on the road um, with a catalog and, and just hitchhiked apparently across the United States trying to sell book plates. And he didn't get very far at first, but little by little he built up a business. And that business in the 1950s was the largest producers of book plates in the world. They were at that point always personalizing designs and keeping the designs for customers. Ernest's son, Lee Morgan, took over the business and that the business really grew, but they added, they ended up adding in other products like bookmarks and journals. Book plates began to be less of what they were focused on. And they were also mass producing the book plates to sell them to stores. So at that point, this was in the 1980s, they made an arrangement with the local newspaper, the Yellow Springs News, to have the news print all the personalized orders. So they, the news was doing that, and the Antioch company was mass producing the book plates. And in 1990, I moved to Yellow Springs and started working for the Yellow Springs News and eventually became a co-owner. And a lot of what I did when I was at the news was actually running the book plate company. So fast forward and I decided to leave the news and I used my equity to buy the book plate business from them because everybody at the news had loved it, but it really wasn't making any money because we weren't focusing on it. Um, so I bought the business and tried to just focus on it, started taking credit cards for the first time which my business doubled in a month. And then, of course, the advent of, of the Internet, you know, becoming more of a place for people to, to buy things, um, that helped a lot. And then eventually the Antioch company went out of business altogether, um, and I acquired all of their designs. So that's basically how I got into it. And um, at some point, you know, at first I was doing the book plates while I was going to school and doing another job. And then I, in 2006, I started focusing just on the book plates and it, it really took off. And that's been what I've been doing ever since. That's great. Thanks for sharing that with us. Sure. <laughs> and we're very thankful you do. It's a wonderful resource, um, a historic, both historical resource and just a lovely resource for us bookish types. Yeah, it's interesting for me because a lot of people will say, I'll tell them what I do and they don't know what a book plate is. Or maybe when I start explaining, they'll, they'll remember having seen it in a Bible or something like that. But there are many avid book plate lovers around the world and it's enough. We ship all over the world and there's enough to keep the business going. And people will write and say how excited or how thankful they are that, that I'm still printing book plates. So it's very rewarding in that way. Well, that's great. Well, we think it's the perfect gift to give. So buy it for yourself, buy it for your friends and family. And as we said, we'll put a link into the show notes. But basically what you need to know is it's Book Plate Inc. with a K. With a K. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Bookplateinc.com. But check the show notes, episode 115. You will find the link to 
hours of browsing pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Karen. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, all right. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Karen. We're turning it around really fast. We have another interview coming up with Hank Philippi Ryan, who's a mystery thriller suspense author extraordinaire. We talked about how she won X amount of literary awards. Since we recorded, she's also won another Anthony Award, which is the award given out during BoucherCon. Boucheron. But she won Best Novel for her book, The Murder List. So congratulations, Hank, on another award. And listeners, we hope you enjoy our interview with Hank Philippi Ryan. We are thrilled to be talking today with author and investigative reporter Hank Philippi Ryan. Hank is the author of 12 novels. She writes two mystery series and has three standalone thrillers. Her latest, The First to Lie, just came out in August, and we talked about it on episode 113. Hank's literary awards include five Agathas, three Anthonys, two McCavities, the Daphne, and a Mary Higgins Clark Award. And those aren't the only awards under Hank's belt. As an investigative TV reporter in Boston, Hank's work has earned her 14 Edmund R. Murrow Awards and 37 Emmy Awards. We are all proud middle-aged women here. In fact, we were excited to learn that Hank didn't start writing novels until she was 55. We're all also Midwest transplants to New England. I'm from Illinois, Emily's from Ohio, and Hank grew up in Indiana, where, we've heard, she often rode a pony to her local library. Welcome, Hank. Thank you. So nice to be with you all this morning. Yeah, we're so excited to have you here. And we were hoping we could start by you letting the listeners know a little bit about your two series and your standalones as well. It's it's so much fun to hear you do that introduction, I have to tell you, because on bad writing days, you know, um, I think about those awards and I think, well, you know, sometimes it has worked. Um, (laughs) It's very reassuring to hear you do that intro. Thank you so much. It's really lovely. I grew up in really rural Indiana, so rural that you couldn't see another house from our house. And my sister and I did ride our ponies to the library to get books. We'd fill up the saddlebags with books and read up in the hayloft of the barn behind our house. Um, And that's where I fell in love with storytelling, you know, with Nancy Drew and Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie. So I always wanted to be uh, either a mystery author or a detective. I thought it might be cooler to be Sherlock Holmes than to write about Sherlock Holmes. So fast forwarding as exactly as you say, I became a reporter, but I never had a good idea for a, a novel until I was 55, which was 15 years ago. And I, and I came home and I said to my husband, I've got a great idea for a mystery. I'm going to write a mystery. And Jonathan says, that's great, honey. He said, do you know how to write a novel? And I'm like, how hard can that be? You know, I've read a million of them. So I soon learned how hard it could be, obviously. Um, but that turned into B, and this is the Hank long answer, forgive me. Um, that turned out to be Primetime, my first novel which won the Agatha for Best First Mystery, which was glorious. And that is the first of my Charlotte McNally series. Charlotte McNally is a 46-year-old reporter in Boston, a television reporter, who's married to her job in television. 
and wonders what happens when the camera doesn't love her anymore. So it's fun, fast-paced, first-person, sort of Nick and Nora Charles-esque, um, a little bit lighter um, humor. She's an investigative reporter on the trail of a big investigative story, the one that she thinks she needs to save her career. And that's what the book is about. I really scraped the bottom for that character. <laughs> I have to go, right? So since I've been a television reporter for 43 years, and that has crossed my mind. But then I had an idea... And there are four books in that series, Primetime, FaceTime, Airtime, Drivetime. I love them and would be happy to write more of those. But then I had a really good idea, forgive me, but it was a good idea for a different kind of novel. And for that, I needed a different kind of situation and a different kind of point of view, multiple points of view was a bigger kind of story. And so I created the Jane Ryland thrillers. Jane Ryland is a younger investigative reporter in Boston who's just sort of starting her career. And her problem is that she's so honorable that she keeps getting fired because she won't do what management wants her to do. She, um, she's very determined. So each of the, of the books, beginning with The Other Woman, which is, has been called um, The Good Wife Meets Law and Order. <laughs> Each of the Jane Ryland books has Jane Ryland, this reporter, on the trail of a big investigative story. And her secret love, Detective Jake Brogan, who's on the trail of a big murder mystery. And their two stories come together. And that's, that's how every one of those books are. There are five in that series now and more under contract. So I loved writing those series. I learned a lot. It's fascinating to read them all. You don't have to read them in any order. I wrote them sort of as standalones. But fascinating to see how, to me at least, how I have grown as an author as those books develop. I still love my first book. I, when I read it now, I think, oh, this is pretty good, uh, which is nice. Yeah. But I do see my development uh, as a writer uh, after these 15 years of writing. That's great. I so read it, oh, sorry, Emily. I, I no, was going to say, I read The Other Woman, and it was definitely a page turner. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I was so proud of that book. You know, that was, that was a, you know, that was what they call leveling up for me, trying to write multiple points of view, trying to write a bigger kind of book, trying to write something that, I mean, all my books are contemporary and timely and fast-paced and page-turning thrillers, but this, was a, this is a bigger book. Um, and so I can really gauge uh, my writing development by the other woman. I, I love it. You know, won the Mary Higgins Clark Award, and that's astonishing. And she, Mary Higgins Clark asked me how old I was when um, she presented the award to me. When I told her, she says, oh, you look good, girl. So <laughs> Mary Higgins Clark, the, the most elegant of us all. So we really miss her. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you come to write The First to Lie? How did you decide then, you know, when, you, when you're in, engaged with these other characters in your series to write a standalone? Well, you know, it's such a good question because a standalone, and I promise you I'll, I'll get to totally what you're asking, but a standalone I learned is such a different creature. You know, from writing a series, I know Charlotte McNally and her milieu and where she lives and what she does and what her goals are. And I know Jane Ryland and what the rhythm and the music and the architecture of the Jane Ryland books are. But the thing of a series, the key of a series is that the suspense of a series 
can't come from the mortality of the main character, right? You know, you know, Jane Ryland isn't going to die because she has to come back for book six. So you smart readers have an expectation of what will be the the rhythm of the book, the arc of this book, that there'll be a problem and Jane will solve it to some peril, but not mortal peril because mm-hmm. you've got to come back. But in a standalone, I started thinking about how in a standalone, everything is on the table. Anything could happen. The reader's expectations are not, you know, they're nothing. You, you don't know. Anybody could live. Anybody could die. Anybody could be telling the truth. Anybody could be lying. You know, anybody could be the bad guy. Anybody could seem to be the good guy and turn out to be the bad guy or the other way around. And that's so powerful because as an author in a standalone, I can just pull the rug out from under you. I can just say, watch this. I remember so well reading Murder on the Orient Express when I was a teenager, I think, maybe younger. And I thought, when you remember the ending and you think, oh my golly, how did Agatha Christie do that? And that's what I'm sort of going for in a standalone, is that twists and turns and page-turning suspense, anything goes. And I just love doing that. So when I had the idea for Trust Me, my very first standalone, I knew that couldn't be a Jane Ryland novel. That had to be a completely different, twisty, turny, gaslighting, psychological, domestic suspense. And that was Trust Me. And I loved that. I loved that concept so much that here is all I've got for this book um, that I decided to do it again in the murder list and then again in The First to Lie. And each of the books is a cat and mouse game, you know, but which character is the cat and which character is the mouse? That's great. So you, you mentioned Agatha Christie. Are there, what other writers shaped you? And also, are you a rereader of some of those novels that influenced you early on? Um, yeah, you know, besides Agatha Christie, I read all the Golden Age mysteries, Niall Marsh and Josephine Tay and Marjorie Allingham and Dorothy Sayers. You know, those are those are great storytellers. I mean, those are puzzle mysteries that make you think. And I started, you know, when you guess something and you're right, you feel so smart. And when you don't guess it and the and the author does some some wonderful sleight of hand and you think, ooh, how did they do that? You know, I, I really love that. But in other authors, in other genres, you know, I love Edith Wharton, how she sort of so grasped her contemporary time and, you know, that insidious dialogue and the complete subtext and double meaning throughout and such a a look at her culture. And I embrace that. I also, when I worked at Rolling Stone, I worked with Hunter Thompson um, a lot. And I learned from him to just go for it, you know, just give it all you got. You know, there you should just deep dig as deeply as you possibly can into the story and don't be afraid of convention and just kind of go for it and then tom wolf bonfire of the vanities i remember thinking this is just a tour de force you know talk about just letting the stops out i kind of just learned from that to listen to my own voice to listen to my characters voices you know also i have to tell you i when i was in college i majored in shakespeare much to my parents chagrin (laughs) they're like oh honey you are not employable what are you going to do with that kind of a degree 
but that storytelling too, you know, think how he, the suspense and the duplicity and the multi layers and the metaphors and the bigger picture stories and the themes as the themes as well as a page turning story. And that's what I'm really going for. I want you to think of your world in a different way after you read my books. I want you to think, ooh, good story. You know, of course, I, I couldn't put that down. But I also want you to, you know, in the in the first to lie, for instance, I want you to look at your relationship with your doctor in a different way. I want you to look at your relationship with your family in a different way and with your mother in a different way um, and with your friends in a different way and with your and with your own family, the family you may want or the family you had tried to get or the family you have. All those kinds of things, family loyalty. What if you knew a secret about your family that would, if told, would devastate your family, um, but help other people? What would you do? So those kinds of um, ethics, morality, situational questions. You know, somebody said in a novel I read, someone asked an author, why do you write books about crime when there's so much crime in the world already? And this author said, I don't write about crime. I write about justice. And that's mm. what I do. I write about truth and justice. You know, but if you say that out loud, you're like, oh, I'm not going to read that book. Right. So <laughs> secretly, secretly, that's what I'm writing about, justice and how we get there. And what does it mean to tell the truth? Let's talk about that in the first to lie, because in this book, you really take on the pharmaceutical industry and kind of hold them to task. And there's a, a part of the book when, when you're talking about, and I, you know, we have to be very careful in thrillers not to give any spoilers, but you're talking about a drug that helps some people and harms other people. And the pharmaceutical bigwigs kind of decide what is the human cost and can we afford the human cost of the people that it harms? Because we'll make enough profit and or, you know, if you're looking through rose colored glasses, maybe help enough people with this drug that it's worth the human cost. What made you decide to take on the pharmaceutical industry in this book? Well, you know, it's interesting that you, it's interesting that you talk about it that way because you're so right about that. If I tried to describe the, the first to lie in four words, and I, somebody on Twitter asked me to do it and I thought, oh, I don't know if I can do that. But interestingly, apropos of what you are talking about, I said betrayal motherhood, obsession, and revenge. Betrayal, mm. motherhood, obsession, and revenge. And to your point, I did not say pharmaceutical companies because my goal in these kinds of books, in the first to lie especially, is to give you a doorway into an ethical moral dilemma by having you see it through the eyes of the individual person who has the stakes in it. So to describe a book as being about, about the pharmaceutical industry, that doesn't feel very relatable. But what if it happened to you? What if there were a drug that promised that your doctor promised you would do something and instead it devastatingly harmed you? If it, if it changed your life that much and then someone said to you and then you found out, for instance, that, yeah, they kind of knew this might happen, but... Um, this drug, this particular drug really does help a lot of people so powerfully. And yes, you know, we knew that there'd be some who would not, for whom it would only not only not work, but be really destructive. 
see how it depends on whether you're the one, you know, how important it is if you were the one. So I wanted to allow people to think about these kinds of ethical calculus when it comes to our lives and our health, that it depends on who, who, I mean, this is all about point of view, isn't it? It depends on your point of view. So I introduce you to Brooke and Lacey and Caitlin, these women who all they want to do is have a family. And when something happens that prevents that, what they do as a result of that. Um, and then the pharmaceutical rep who's also wondering what it is that she's selling and an investigative reporter who fears that this might be happening and is desperate to find out before any more women get hurt. So that's the cat and mouse game, isn't it? It's also you know health versus um, despair and promises versus broken hearts and family versus no family and sort of a David and Goliath. Is there a female version of that story there? Hmm, we should think about that mm -hmm. a version of that story that shows us how even though the good guys should win, sometimes they don't. And even how and although the little guy can make a difference. And that's what my whole life is as an investigative reporter. You know, I'm a little guy and I try to see if I can make a difference in people's lives. And that's sort of what I'm going for as well in the first to lie. So again, you know, I want you to look at your life, your life differently after you read the first to lie, the decisions that are made for you, the decisions that you make about your life and your health. And so strange because this whole ridiculous COVID pandemic that's just so tragic right now encompasses all the same kinds of things, doesn't it? Would you take a medication, you know, if you wanted something to happen, but what if it doesn't work and who's making money from this? And is this really going to work? And how are we going to know? And that's what the first to lie is all about. Although it was written, you know, two years before this happened. So it does show that these themes uh, are timeless. You know, Hank, you, you kind of, almost hit on one of the big questions we wanted to ask you, and that is, as an investigative reporter and as a novelist, you know, how do you go about finding the stories that you're going to investigate and report on or write about? You know, what are the similarities or, or differences for these two avenues you have to help people see themselves in the, the what's going on in the, the larger world? I think I am the luckiest person in the world because if I hadn't had all these years, you know, decades of investigative reporting, I would never be able to be a, a crime fiction novelist. I, I, I never would because think of all the days that I spent writing a story, right? A news story with a beginning, middle, and an end, with a character who you care about with an important problem that needs to be solved, where the good guys win and the bad guys get what's coming to them. And in the end, you get some justice and you change the world a little bit. You know, that is a television news story and that is crime fiction. That is, it's exactly the same thing. So even though I went into writing my first novel, a complete and ridiculous novice, as clueless as anybody could be, I did have that background of understanding how to tell a story. What you know, I don't want you to change the channel when my stories are on TV, and I don't want you to be able to put down my books when you. You know, I used to say back in the day when there were subways, I want you to miss your stop on the subway because you're reading this book. So where do the ideas come from? Is the question of this 
you know, our lives. Where do we where do we get ideas? For my news stories, I get phone calls, I get tips, I have curiosity, I wonder if the system is working the way it's supposed to work. You know, all those Emmys on my wall behind me, every one of those represents a secret that someone didn't want me to tell you. That's what those are, a story that we got to dig up and discover and make a little movie about and then put on television and change the world. So the, the story tips, the story ideas, letters, emails, phone calls, my own curiosity, my own sort of skepticism about the world. You know, if something is announced, I think, well, you know, my horrible reaction is, oh, that's never going to work. You know, I wonder if that's going to work. So um, and we look into those kinds of things. And my stories are, are you know, highly researched, long form, long term, you know, not just day of, as we call them, stories. Back when I was a general assignment reporter, they were. But my my novels aren't my investigative stories made into fiction. They are in some weird way. I mean, I've wired myself with hidden cameras and confronted corrupt politicians and gone undercover and in disguise. But and my my novels are drawn from those experiences. You know, I've been at fires and murders and SWAT teams and political campaigns and in prison and had people confess to murder and uh, convicted murderers insist that they were not guilty. And I've been in, you know, underground at the state house and behind the scenes at the airport where nobody gets to go, all those kinds of things. So I take, you know, I know what people look like when they're lying. You know, I learned about motivation. I learned about how far someone would go to get what they want and how far someone would go to cover up something they've done wrong. So you take all that and then you get a little, I get a little glimmer of an idea of, you know, what if the daughter of one of these pharmaceutical companies, what if there was a Sackler, forgive me, and that is just generic um, what if there was a daughter of one of the big pharmaceutical companies who knew something about what her family's company was doing? Would you tell if it was really going to help people, but it would really harm you and your family? What would you do? And that was sort of the way in to the first to lie. Also, I did an, invest an undercover investigative story where I went in disguise to a doctor's office and pretended with my producer, who was pretending to be my husband, pretended that we were a couple who wanted to get pregnant mm -hmm. to see whether he would tell us the truth about his malpractice history. And he lied. He lied to us. Um, he lied to us to get us to have him as, a, as our doctor, to pay him, to, you know, to be part of his uh, patient base. But it would have hurt me, right? It would have hurt me if I did that. But he he lied to me to better himself. So as a result of that story, the law changed in Massachusetts for what doctors have to reveal in their public records. So that's great. But I started thinking about how in order to get that story, I lied to him, right? Mm. I lied to him. And I, I was the good guy lying, right? I was lying for a good reason. So is that okay? And so that's what got me into the first to lie. How, when is it okay to lie? Is it okay to lie for the greater good? Is that all right then? You know, then you're just an undercover reporter. But if you're a bad doctor who's lying, that's obviously bad and we understand that. But where's the line about that? What if you could be someone else and take their role and then get to sort of tell the truth about what they're doing, which is lying for you. 
that's the first to lie about identity, about honesty, and about the equilibrium of truth and what and how the, how high the stakes are for that. And so you see how that came from my story, um, my undercover in disguise story to the doctor's office, but it's not that story. And that's how all my books are. So I'm grateful for the experience of all these years with all those things that I've done that would are really amazing and unique, but they're not just then made into fiction. It's, it's new. It's like a Rubik's cube that you take all those little elements and click, 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 click. And it's a new picture every time. It's mm, great. great. Yeah. Another thing um, that Hank has under her belt that I didn't mention in the introduction was that you are a past president of Sisters in Crime, which is a nationwide, and I, I believe they have international chapters too, organization that was initially started to help support women mystery writers. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your work mentoring younger, newer writers, I should say. I'm trying not to say younger writers, but newer writers, because as you know, you started writing at 55 and we've had guests on who didn't publish their first novel until they were in their 70s. Can you talk a little bit about that, about, you know, new writers and, and your work with them? There's just nothing more gratifying than that. I mean, first, on, on so many levels, and I'll quickly say, so I remember when they took me aside and asked me whether I would be interested in being the president of National Sisters in Crime. This was in 2012 or 13, 13, I think. And I almost burst into tears because here is this organization that was founded, I think, maybe 28 years ago now by the incredible, iconic Sarah Paretsky, who had realized that um, women who bought more books and wrote more books, but it was the men who were getting all the reviews and men who were getting all the notice. And women were sort of pushed aside as a little cozy writers and of no importance. And it was Sisters in Crime's goal back then and still is to make sure there's equality in the attention that authors get, whether no matter what gender they are. When I was president of Sisters in Crime, we changed our motto, and I'm gonna get this wrong, but we changed our motto from something like working for parity in the system, which had been earlier, to something like maintaining our parity in the system. We sort of declared victory in a certain kind of way, although that's never over. So I'm really thrilled to get to shepherd new authors because the world of writing and the world of publishing and the, and the world of the writing life is, um, you know, they say you can only learn from experience, but what they don't say is that the experience doesn't have to be your own, right? Someone else can teach you something. Someone else can point you in the right direction or show you the way or, you know, warn you about things. Um, and that's been so much fun for me to see authors who I've mentored and consulted with and had coffee with and had wine with um, blossom and grow. I have to tell you, it's kind of, amazing because I know that I'm in the midst of writing my 13th book now. I'm a USA Today bestseller. By any stretch of the imagination, I have done well, knock on wood, so far. But I still feel like the newbiest of the newbies. I mean, I feel that I have so much to learn and so far to go. And I teach classes so often, even more now in COVID days. Um, and I'm always so delighted when people say, oh, what a good idea, or oh, I didn't know that, or oh, I, why didn't I think of that? And I think, oh, you know, there's an interesting 
uh, realization that I think sometimes women don't allow themselves to have that, hey, I really know something. You know, I can really help you. I can, I can offer you something. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just opening your eyes to like, hey, there may be another way or here's something you need to know or here's something that happened to me. I don't, you know, don't let this happen to you because now you know. Or can you, you know, look at your manuscript in a different way? What if this happened? What if that happened? To just sort of spark people's minds. I mean, there are two parts of it. There's one that you can, you know, you need to know how to write a book. There are manuscripts that I've gotten. I'll tell you because it's just us. There are manuscripts I've gotten where I've wanted to say to the writer, have you ever read a book? You know, <laughs> like that, you know. And other ones, I just stand up and cheer. I think, oh my golly, this is um, this is amazing. You you got this. You know, my my father was was the music critic for the Chicago Daily News, and got to see musicals before they opened. He saw Kismet and he saw West Side Story in in the pre pre previews. And I said to him, Dad, you know, did you know when you heard Tonight or Maria? Nobody else had ever heard those songs there's a place for us you know did you know that those were that was going to be special and he said yes you do you know you know and that's how i feel when i look at some manuscripts now of unpublished writers i think look at that you know this is your west side story sweetheart you know let's this is great to see so it is a it's a wonderful experience to get to teach and mentor and watch the success of other authors absolutely so are we allowed to ask you? you? You gave a little teaser about that you're writing your next book. Are we allowed to ask you about it? Some authors are very uh, cagey about talking about what's in the works. We're the book cougars. You can ask whatever you want. Um, <laughs> fear. You know, I can tell you it doesn't have a title. I can tell you that I'm right on time for my deadline with it, if it's June now. <laughs> <laughs> Because the pandemic really hit me, I have to say. You know, I, I was I sat down at my computer and I'm ready to go on this new book and I thought, why am I doing this? You know, this is this is not worthwhile. And it took me a little while to think, no, this is even more worthwhile now than it ever was. You know, I want I I actively with agency decided to be a storyteller. Um, and it's even more important now. It's always safe inside a book, isn't it? It's always safe inside a book. And it's always safe inside a manuscript. And I evolved finally to embrace all that. So my new book doesn't have a title, but it is about fame and it's about privacy and it's about um, how precarious fame can be, how you instantly someone who's walking that tightrope of celebrity can be turned into a hashtag or canceled or their career can be ruined over, you know, just yelling at your kid in the grocery store. So I'm sort of trying to delve into why we see celebrities as celebrities. And also from the standpoint of my main character, who is a celebrity, if she has secrets, and everyone does, how far will she go to protect them, to protect her own fame and her own family? She has a daughter who's in the spotlight too. Her daughter didn't choose to be in the spotlight. How will she protect her and how will her mother's own celebrity and power affect this little girl as well. So it's about something like that. And I'll tell you in about 20,000 words what, what <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what happened. Well, that I sounds good. 
It should come out in September of 2021, which is a crazy thing to say. So I know it'll happen, but we should, as always, we shall see. Good. Well, we hope you'll come back and talk with us about it when it's out. Oh, my pleasure. It'll be so much fun to do that. And especially fun since then I know it'll be done. And sometimes (laughs) impossible. So I'm very grateful to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Hank, for making time to talk with us today. It's been really wonderful to see you and to talk with you. Oh, my pleasure. My complete pleasure. You you both are phenomenal and your show is terrific and my complete honor to be part of it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Right.